coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 45 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. Dolores Lozano is actually on vacation with Orbit this week for the Memorial Day weekend, so she could not make it. But guys, the big story of the week, obviously, is Baylor University again. We've spoken about Baylor several times on this podcast, and not in a positive light necessarily, but regarding the sexual assaults and domestic violence that have happened with the football team and the campus at large. And this past Thursday, the university made the decision to fire head coach Art Bryles. And I, I, I think it's the right decision just based off of everything that I've read in the Pepper Hamilton report. And Jeremy, I'm going to start with you since you graduated from Baylor. What was your reaction when you found out around 11 a.m. on Thursday about Art Bryles being fired? And we've had a few days to process it. What are you thinking right now? Uh, absolute shock. Still absolute shock. Um, I, I don't think that there's a Baylor fan uh, who follows football, uh, Baylor football, that isn't still sort of in a state of shock right now. Um, and I don't think this is something anyone expected. I know all the information that I was hearing prior to the actual announcement was that Browse was okay and had follow protocols. Um, obviously, that turned out not to be true. Um, you know, this is all just, it's, it's tough um, for a Baylor fan to take, you know, especially given where our program has been. Um, you know, before Browse arrived and where it is now, um, I, I think it's uh, it's an uncertain future for for, for Baylor football, and certainly something that um, you know I'll be um, real close to here as they move into look, look to looking for a new coach and naming an interim coach. So, um, and it's it's painful right now, you know, because um, you you want the best for the university and you want the best for the program. I think above that, you want what's best for the victims um, and who who suffered at the hands of. Uh, risky players that shouldn't have been there so um, it's just it's a tough time to be a Baylor Bear and that's that's really where all my energy has been this week is in focusing on this. There has been a lot of chatter this morning that I've seen on Twitter about uh, Baylor deserving the death penalty and uh, various pundits and columnists saying that uh, the NCAA should basically give Baylor the same punishment SMU was given for recruiting violations uh, not too, too long ago. Um, shut down that program. Of course, it's been struggling to rebuild ever since then. Uh, just as Baylor people, as guys who have a dog in this fight, so to speak, what, uh, what are your thoughts hearing about all that chatter? That's absolute clickbait. And the NCAA, you know, they can do whatever they want, but the people that are doing that are people that are just trying to get more clicks to their website. If you actually look at what the NCAA has done in the past few years in terms of punishment, whenever they've tried to legislate morality, they've been sued in federal court. And look at the Penn State case, for example. What happened at Penn State was disgusting, but that, you know, that's not an NCAA violation. And as disgusting as it is, the NCAA can't jump in and do whatever they want, as you know, federal lawsuits proved a few years ago. And I believe it was 2015 when the NCAA had to step back and say, okay, we're going to go ahead and drop all of our penalties against Penn State. JK, we'll go ahead and uh, you know, just pretend that didn't happen. Uh, I think that's what's going to happen to Baylor. I think the bigger issue with Baylor is potentially losing federal funding for you know, research. I mean, if, if everything in that Pepper Hamilton report is true, they broke federal law. And that's much more important than, you know, NCAA rules. But in terms of the football program itself, they're not they're going to play this year. I mean, there's no question about it. The NCAA, the only thing that they could potentially 
punish the university for would be impermissible benefits for giving preferential treatment to football players. You know, essentially the the schools, the football team was on an island, and the coaching staff was punishing the guy, punishing these guys uh, how they saw fit. And you know, I, I get it. I understand football teams, and you know, if a guy smokes pot or a guy. Uh, you know, has a public intoxication, sure, you can discipline that through the football team, you know, make them run, do extra weights. But at the point in time when domestic violence or rape comes in, those coaches aren't qualified to do an investigation. And they're bound by federal law to report that. I mean, Title IX exists for a reason. And the coaching staff failed miserably. Art Bryles failed miserably. He failed the 16,000 students that are at Baylor University, he failed 120,000 living alums. Uh, and it, it, to me, it's just, it's, it's very heart-wrenching to see, you know, my university go through a second scandal in the past 13 years. I mean, we had the, the Carlton Dotson, Pat, uh, Patrick Dennehy back in 2003, the Dave Bliss cover-up. And the sad thing is the cover-up, as you said a few weeks ago, is always worse than the crime. If Art Bryles would have turned in these student-athletes that have been, you know, accused of rape or accused of domestic violence and just handed that to Wake Up Police and said, all right, look, I'm turning it in. He would be still employed. I'd say that is often true. I'm not sure if I actually said that explicitly. That's not something I usually feel like I say, but in this case may not be true. The crimes are pretty bad here. So covering them up. You you actually said, I I listened to the podcast the other day. It was, uh, I believe, episode 38. You said the cover up is always worse than the crime, except this one. This is actually a federal crime, yeah. so I think it might actually be worse since there are victims. But I think that if our Bryles would have done the right thing in the first place, rather than focusing about wins and victories on the field in that $300 million stadium that Baylor alums and donors gave him, he'd be still, he'd still be the head coach rather than being who he is right now. Who is he right now? I mean, I, we've, we've tossed around some words. I've used the word scumbag. I think it applies here, given everything that he's covered up and done, uh, the way that he has violated you know, the, the ethical obligations he had in order to keep a winning football team on the field and keep these kids out of jail and keep their good name intact. Well, I mean, here's the irony. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say scumbag. Um, if there's one thing that, that is clear is that even if Browns had kicked off every single one of these players who was accused of a crime, he would have still had a fantastic football team. So... I'm I'm much less likely to be to believe that this was about winning football games and more inclined to believe this was about saving uh, players that he felt like needed saving. I mean, if there's one thing that's clear is that Bryles cared about his players perhaps too much. Too you know he cared about them so much that he didn't discipline them correctly, which you know was supposed to be in the hands of the Baylor judiciary and not the athletic department. So um, you know, based on what I knew about the man, I, I still want to have faith that that he did what he thought was right, even though that um, to the rest of us in the wider society it wasn't right. Not even close. Not even close. It wasn't in service of uh, justice or the or what was in the best interest of the program or the victim. So, um, you know, I I think what my my question right now is what is what is coming down the pipe for Baylor in terms of um, you know changes that are coming to the program, a new coach, uh, and then what's what's up next for Art Bryles? Those are all questions that I'm asking myself right now. I mean, like, where does a guy, you know, from, from where he's been, go now that he's had something like this on his record? I honestly don't care what happens, to Art Bryles. I mean, he he lied to me. I mean, he lied to me as a, a man. He's a man of high character. And, you know, sitting in my living room right now, there's a magazine from Dave Campbell, Texas Football. It's a cover from about two, three years ago. And on the cover, it's Art Bryles and Bryce Petty. And it says, built to last. Obviously, that's, that's not true. Um, but I think reflecting on it this entire week, it just 
kind of puts everything into perspective. I mean, I, I know that, you know, sometimes I put a lot of stock and pride in how the football team performs. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of pride in that. And I think sometimes uh, as humans, we shouldn't put all of that, you know, pride and, 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 you know, boastfulness behind an athletic program. Because at the end of the day, I didn't choose Baylor University because of the athletic success and the football team. I mean, I went to Baylor University in 2005, and uh, they hadn't been to a bowl game in, like, what, 13 years. If, if I wanted football success, I would have gone to the University of Texas. But I, I think just looking at it at the end of the day, it's just it's very unfortunate what happened. And I, I'm very proud that the Board of Regents made the correct decision and the hard decision to let – arguably the greatest coach in Baylor football history go as a result of him covering up crimes. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens and transpires over the next few weeks, what happens with the football team. And uh, it, it is great to see some of the guys on campus, you know, actually rally around the football team right now and to see some of those, some of those leaders actually stand up and say, you know, what happened was wrong. You know, don't give up on us. You know, there are a lot of good people still on this team. And that's the same thing with everything else in life. There's always a few bad eggs that could ruin things. And unfortunately, uh, Baylor football had a few too many bad eggs. But uh, kind of switching gears here for a moment. Uh, last week, we actually had head coach Kelvin Sampson of the University of Houston basketball team on the podcast. And uh, Kevin, some news broke about Coach Sampson this week. If you want to go ahead and tell us about it. Yeah, there have been uh, discussion for quite some time about uh, giving a raise to Coach Sampson based on the success he's having and the direction he's taking the basketball program. So uh, as of this week, he got a $300,000 a year raise to $1.4 million annually. And I, I, of course, I think anyone that listens to this podcast knows I'm a huge fan of Coach Sampson. Love what he does. Love him as a person, as a basketball mind. I think he's well-deserving of that money, so we congratulate him on uh, on a much-deserved raise. But also, <clears throat> within that raise, there is special compensation bonus uh, allowed for being selected for and advancing in the NCAA tournament. So uh, we had a poll, and uh, shout-out to all of our fan, uh, fans, listeners, whoever on scout.com. Uh, we always appreciate that board and the feedback we get there. So we took a poll on whether we thought the uh, the Cougars would reach the big dance next year. And uh, 80% of our respondents, and keep in mind those are UH fans on that board, 80% believe that, yes, the Cougars will reach the NCAA tournament. My vote was in there as a yes as well. Uh, what do you guys think? I mean, we've talked with Coach Sampson. We've seen this program. Is it trending in that direction? Are we going to see them in the NCAA tournament next season? I think U of H is definitely heading in the right direction under Coach Sampson. Uh, he's you know done a great job in terms of recruiting. Uh, but honestly, right now, it's May. Uh, my focus is not on college basketball. So, I mean, my focus is still on, uh, you know, Major League Baseball, uh, the college baseball playoffs as they approach here the next few days, and also uh, college football and what happens in August. But I, I will readdress that question for you in October when it becomes appropriate. Well, think about this, too. U of H, um, I was kind of butthurt myself when, uh, obviously, Art Browse was a coach there. Kevin Sumlin was a coach as well. They both used U of H as a stepping stone to bigger and better jobs. And, boy, how far have they both plummeted in terms of uh, national respect and admiration since they left U of H. So I got to say, uh, as, a, as a U of H alum, as a U of H fan, as a guy who covers U of H sports, it's um, 
obviously not been satisfying to see any of these horrible things happen at Baylor. Um, it has been on, on some ways satisfying to see the horrible things happen at Texas A&M because it's a different kind of horrible. But um, but really, you talk about guys that U of H both wanted to keep and both couldn't manage to keep and now are um, in their own ways toxic, radioactive. So, I mean, as, as Houston Coug fans, I think we kind of dodged some bullets there. And we've got our guy, Tom Herman. Hopefully, we can keep him. Uh, there's some chatter about him being up for the, uh, the Baylor job. He's on everyone's shortlist, of course, and deservedly so. But... Uh, at least where we sit right now, I'm certainly glad to be a Coug and not a Bear or an Aggie. Well, I can tell you right now that uh, I think Baylor fans would love to have Coach Tom Herman, but I don't think he's going to be the next head coach at Baylor University. I'll also go on record and say that next year at this time in 2017, Coach Tom Herman will not be the head coach at the University of Houston. I think he's going to get uh, – I think he's waiting for a blue blood job to open up this year and I think uh, Herman's going to get that especially if he can take the Cougs to a uh, a playoff game but we're going to dive in a little bit more into the college football landscape and, and Baylor University here in just a few moments we've got a great interview with Pat Forty from Yahoo Sports we're going to talk a little bit about the Bears the college football season we're also going to talk about Michael Phelps and the uh, the Olympics coming up here in a few weeks in Rio de Janeiro also we've got an interview with Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas Paul's actually going to be our, our first First, third time guest on the Weekly Brew podcast, and he's going to kind of tell us what is going on in Waco right now since everything has broken in the past few days. And uh, lastly, we've got an interview with Miles Porter, who is a Paralympic gold medal favorite in the sport of judo. And uh, the Rio Paralympic Games actually start in 100 days. So uh, Miles was definitely pumped about joining us on the podcast. We had a great conversation with him. But if you would like to follow all of our work, we encourage you to Follow us on our social media channels. You can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also follow our work on weeklybrewcast.com. We post content there each Monday, and it gets pushed straight to your inbox. Also, you can go to iTunes, and you can leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you like. Give us show ideas. Tell us if you would like to hear a certain guest. We take all of that feedback very seriously. And uh, last but not least, we want you to... uh, Go check out our sponsors, We Desserts. So happy birthday to you, Austin. I, I don't know if you Thank want you. the listeners to know about it, but we're not cutting it. Happy birthday to you. This is coming out on your birthday um, this this Monday. So you are, um, I actually don't know how old you are, 29, 30, something like that. 29. 29, okay. Um, but uh, happy birthday to you. We, uh, we celebrated, of course, last night at uh, a local restaurant very near We, Picos, and uh, we brought over a cake from We, and uh, we, we special ordered it from We Desserts, our sponsor. Um, we got a good deal because let's face it, uh, you know, they're our sponsor. We have a good relationship with them, but it would have been great at any price, I think. What was your impression of that delicious uh, cake that was provided for you? It was really good. I mean, you can check the Instagram post that I posted. Uh, you can look at my Instagram if you guys want. It's at Austin Staten, but phenomenal cake. Uh, I couldn't have asked for anything better, and it was great for uh, both of you guys to show up. Definitely uh, appreciate that. And uh, thanks to Penny and Jen at We Desserts for making a phenomenal cake and i definitely recommend if you have a birthday or if you have friends that have a birthday uh, make sure to go buy we desserts uh, even if you don't know what you want just tell them to be creative I yeah. mean, those two are very creative when it comes to baking uh, baked goods and pastries and uh, you know fine desserts 
Also, if you tell them you listen to the Weekly Brew Podcast, you get an extra 10% off. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a win-win situation for everybody. And let's face it. Somebody's going to have a birthday this week. You work in an office. You work around people. You probably have family, people that love you. Somebody's going to have a birthday coming up very soon. And it would be a great idea to go and get them something uh, really special. Because if you go to like a supermarket, uh, it's garbage. I mean, you look like garbage. You look like you don't love the person if you get one of those terrible uh, you know, pastries they make there. I, I, pastries with air quotes. They're not really very good. But if you go to Wee Desserts, you can get something. You can really work with them. They're artists, if you'll forgive that pronunciation. They really know what they're doing there. They're very creative, very uh, talented as well. It's all made from scratch, so it's delicious and beautiful, uh, really beautiful. So uh, certainly go to We Desserts, 3411 Kirby. It's O-U-I, and of course, as a listener, you get a 10% discount. Uh, make someone very happy this week. Go to We. So thanks to Penny and Jen for making my week very happy. Uh, but you, as mentioned before, we've got a packed show on deck today. We've got interviews with Pat Forty from Yahoo Sports, Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas, and Miles Porter, who was a gold medal favorite for Paralympic judo in Rio de Janeiro this summer. So, guys, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew is Pat Forty, who is college sports columnist for Yahoo Sports and also covers a variety of other topics such as horse racing and USA swimming. Pat, thanks for joining us this week. My pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. You actually wrote an article last week on Idaho State senior sprinter Shelby Erdahl, who ruptured her Achilles during a 400-meter race and managed to actually finish. And, you know, while her story is quite phenomenal, it was something that you wrote a little bit further in that article that really stuck out to me. And you said, quote, if you're a college sports fan suffering from scandal fatigue, I don't blame you. Assaults at Baylor, strippers at Louisville, an Alabama football star in possession of stolen handgun, endless investigations, North Carolina and Mississippi. Even Jerry Sandusky made a recent return to the headlines. And Pat, when I just look at the college sports landscape, to me, it's just very disheartening. And I guess my question for you is, why does it seem that there are more and more incidents every single year, perhaps even more so than in, in some of our professional sports leagues? Well, it is discouraging. I agree with you that, that, I mean, we seem to have so many negative stories. And maybe that some of that is perception. Maybe there aren't more, but it sure feels like it. And they feel, you know, significant. I mean, obviously what's transpired at, at, at Baylor is, is very significant. What, um, Mississippi and North Carolina have been charged with is very significant from an NCAA rules standpoint. Uh, what Louisville is probably facing will be significant. So, I mean, these are big, these are big cases and I think they, they're troubling in terms of the overall tenor of, of college sports. And, you know, I think you could say maybe there's been more than in the pro ranks because there's simply more teams. Uh, secondly, you've got younger athletes that are probably more prone to making bad decisions. Uh, thirdly, they don't have million-dollar salaries to protect that maybe would govern them from making, uh, you know, bad decisions a, a little bit. So, I, I mean, I think there are a few of those uh, factors involved. But the other thing, you know, I, the, the amount of money that is at stake now in college sports uh, through media rights deals, through apparel deals, whatever, for schools, I think has even further ratcheted up the just win mentality, that there, there is so much money at stake now that people are probably willing to overlook more things, hope they can get away with more things, uh, and, and take more risks on players that, that probably shouldn't be uh, involved in, in representing a university. So I, I think that I think that just the, the skyrocketing revenues over the last five, six years has probably played a part in 
people taking cutting more corners and taking more chances. Of course, the spotlight right now is on Baylor, but as many commentators have noted, you know, this happens all around the country. I'm wondering, do you see this as a systemic problem at, you know, most, if not all universities and local police departments uh, that surround them around the country? And then where do you see the media playing into this as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think campus assaults, sexual assaults on campus, regardless of of athletic or not, are a, a major issue on campuses. And I think we're just now kind of getting our arms around the prevalence of it and frequency of it because I think it's being reported more and there are more women who are willing to come forward and more universities that are willing to, to take on these cases. And that's kind of one of the disheartening things about Baylor has been the, the seeming inability of the school and even the police department right. to jump in fully on this and, and, and really, you know, tackle it and face it and do something about it. So, uh, you know, I think that I, I do think that there's it, it is a a growing issue out there. Uh, I do. Yeah, there's been more media coverage. I think there's been, you know, pretty aggressive media coverage. I, I did a lot of work on the the Jameis Winston allegations at uh, Florida State, and they've had many other problems down there as well. And so I think that, you know, they you, you go from there and, and I mean, there are things that we that we probably need to cover. It's it's more fun to go cover games and go to see, go to exciting atmospheres where everybody's excited. And, and, and the, you know, that's what, that's what we got into the business for, but you're, you're, you're not doing your job in my opinion, if you're, if you are not paying attention to the other side of the coin too, and some of the issues that, that are out there in college sports. The stark reality is that there's only going to be more money in college athletics. They're only going to be more valuable as programs in the future. So, I mean, is this, uh, is this just the reality of college sports now? Is there any coming back from this ledge or is this just kind of going to be the, uh, the, the state of things in the future to come? Well, you know, that's a good question. And I guess we'll have to wait and see, but as long as the, the financial stakes are this high, I mean, I think we are certainly at risk of, of having programs say, you know what, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever we need to do to get these guys, these players, even if they're, they're not the kind of people you would necessarily want on a college campus if they weren't good at athletics. Or, uh, you know, there, there, there's any number of moral and ethical backbends that schools have been willing to make uh, to bring in uh, students that weren't good students, uh, and, and or athletes that weren't good students, and athletes that aren't good people. So most of them, and I will say this, this needs to be said, and I think you guys would concur that for the most part, on a team of 85 guys, not I mean, the, most of them are good guys. Most of them right. are there to try to get an education and are are and handle themselves well and represent their school and themselves well. So he, it is not as if every player at Baylor or at North Carolina or wherever you want to look is is corrupting the ideals of the university. It, it's unfortunate that it happens that way, but when there is enough of a critical mass that occurs, that's when you have to look and say, you know, what is the problem and what would it take to correct it? And, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether we're on course for a truly major correction at this point uh, and if we ever will get there. Specifically with the Baylor situation, uh, you know, that's kind of near and dear to our, our hearts. I mean, uh, you know, we know people who have been impacted by this and uh, it's just a crazy situation. And, you know, f- for an, uh, for me as, a, you know, an alum of the university, it's uh, very disheartening to see what's going on and just the, the lack of response from the university. I'm curious, since you, you do have a platform in the national media, what would you 
suggest needs to actually happen for not only Baylor to reform and become a leader in terms of protecting, uh, you know, the safety and uh, protecting the safety of, you know, women on campus and just actually following through with Title IX? I mean, what actions need to be taken by the university? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think that there's obviously there needs to be enough sunlight shed on what's going on so that people know because that will increase the accountability. If people don't know about assaults and brawls that have occurred because or because uh, re- police reports have been pulled from the files or or you know people who are in positions who have been told about these assaults have done nothing you know to players uh, who have been accused of these things then <laughs> if they're allowed to get away with that behavior then it's going to keep happening if but if if it comes out if if people are open about it, if there are people on campus who want to know what's going on more than just, hey, my football team is good uh, and are willing to question um, what's going on, then, you know, I think when the questions are asked and people's feet are put to the fire, then you'll see action, you'll see response. And, you know, quite frankly, I think it's it's sad for Baylor, which is, you know, a a well-respected academic institution, a, a prominent religious institution, that it took basically ESPN outside the lines, camping out down there and talking to a lot of people and finding out the extent of the issues before action started to be taken, uh, you know. But at least it happened. And so, you know, I think you need a you need a, a watchdog media that's not just there to cheer for the team, that's there to cover the good and the bad. Uh, you need people on campus who aren't afraid to speak up. You need a board of regents that will take action if it needs to. You need a school president and administration that's going to listen to people and do something when they're told about what's going on. You need a football coach who's willing to face the facts that maybe you can't get every player you want because some of them right. shouldn't be on campus. Uh, it's, it's multi-layered. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to happen, but you know, hopefully we're heading in that direction. But again, I, I'll hold my breath and wait and see. Well, like you said, there is the good and the bad, of course, and with all the outside the lines reporting and the scandals and so forth that you made reference to, it's easy to forget that there's actually football to be played and not too far from now, actually. So there's a, a weekend opening slate that is just uh, mind boggling to me compared to what we've seen in the past. You know, it's not not powder puffs. These are real games. And I'm curious, do you think that the college football playoffs uh, committee has had an impact on um, on scheduling up? Has it had the impact we hoped it would in terms of teams playing other good teams, particularly early in the season? Yes, yes. So the playoff has, has has already paid significant benefits in terms of seeing better games and better schedules. And it's amazing to me it took this long, but college football finally figured out the first weekend of the season is ours. It's all ours. There's no NFL. Let's play great games. And we started to see it maybe five, six, seven years ago with some of the neutral site games, and Alabama was kind of a forerunner of that. They'll go play in Atlanta against somebody else from some other conference. And now, you know, people have seen, okay, we don't have to play a true road game, and we're going to get paid a lot of money, so let's schedule them. So now you've got those games in Houston, in Dallas, in Orlando, in Atlanta. Um, so, the, I mean, those are proliferating. And while I still think there's nothing better than a good can't, can't on-campus game, at least they're good games. And so we're getting to see those. Uh, and, yeah, the, the strength of schedule is finally becoming, I think, legitimately more valued and more important as a criteria for getting into the playoff. And so teams, and I mean, we've seen conferences basically legislate that you you have to play better non-conference schedules. And some schools have had to be dragged into it kicking and screaming. Some are probably still going to resist, <laughs> but 
you know what? It's been better for college football to have these good games. I can't wait for that first weekend. So I do my best to be objective and professional, but uh, the highlight to me, obviously, as a U of H alum, is the Oklahoma-Houston game uh, here in Houston, NRG Stadium. And uh, I'm just I'm looking at that, and my heart's racing. That's a, that's a huge game for the program. Just from an outsider's perspective, what does it do for U of H, and particularly that bid to get into a Power 5 conference if they're able to take that game against Oklahoma to start the season? Well, it is a immense, opportunity i mean there's no doubt about it and you know what houston did with their big opportunities last year in year one under tom herman is why they're in this position and why they, why even anybody is talking about them as a potential you know big 12 entity because they went to louisville and they won and they won in the american conference and then they they go to the bowl game and they handle florida state and then biggest of all you keep tom herman so uh, that those things are just huge, and now this is the next step. You start the season with a absolute blue blood matchup, and if you can win that, I mean, you, once the, the the momentum just keeps rolling, and you know, Houston, it, it, it'll be interesting. Houston's already on everybody's radar to start the year, which hadn't been the case in a long time. That's a good thing. That's what winning a big bowl game does for you. And now, if you roll it over, and you can beat. Uh, Oklahoma to start the year, hey, the, the sky's the limit. I mean, you can really look at it and say, what can't this team do? Hey, you know, the rest of the schedule, there's going to be people that will take pot shots at it. Uh, but if you get that first big marquee win, uh, all things are possible. You know, another game that's going on that weekend would be the UCLA-Texas A&M game. And Texas A&M, if you talk about Houston being a team that's trending upwards, Tom Herman being a name that's trending upwards, Texas A&M seems to be uh, exactly the opposite. I mean, just from looking from the outside in there, what is happening with that program with Kevin Sumlin, who just a few years ago, obviously coming out of Houston, was one of the most heralding coach, uh, coaching hires in the nation? Yeah, it's almost like it was too much too fast for Sumlin. You know, I mean, things just happened too easily, and they got, you know, they were sloppy or cocky or what, but... But the early success has been followed with such, you know, player turnover, uh, coaching turnover, disappointments, um, you know, on the field and inability to field a good defense for a long time. Uh, and, and on top of that, too, I mean, you kind of see what happened with Johnny Manziel going, and, and you wonder, okay, exactly how much did they put up with from him? You know, that, that I can't imagine he got to the NFL and all of a sudden became this wildly irresponsible, self-destructive guy. Uh, and there were a couple minor incidents at A&M, but I'm wondering what else transpired that we don't even know about. And, you know, the inability to to find the next quarterback. They found a lot of quarterbacks, but none of them have stayed and none of them have been that guy. So, you know, it's, it's been very puzzling to me. And I thought Kevin Sumlin was a guy whose career was absolutely on track to be a superstar. Um and I'm not saying he still can't be, but he got paid a ton of money very quickly uh, to get the program kind of up and running in the SEC. And now the follow-through is not there, and he will, he'll be one of the coaches that enters this season under a lot of pressure. Now, Pat, we mentioned at the top of the show that your primary focus is working with college sports, but you also do a lot in terms of, uh, you know, swimming coverage. And, and the Rio 2016 Summer Olympics are, you know, under 75 days away. And when I look at the big names in swimming, of course, you've got Michael Phelps coming out of retirement, Ryan Lochte, you've got Nathan Adrian. Uh, those are the big names kind of heading into Rio, but none of them are ranked at that, you know, top spot in the world right now. And 
I, I'm kind of curious from your perspective and just covering the sport, where does the men's team kind of stack up this year? Is the rest of the world finally catching up? And uh, on that note, do you think the majority of the swimming stars right now are just on the women's side with Missy Franklin and Katie Ledecky? Uh, it's a very good question. And, and it is very, it is wait and see. And we're going to see in about a month um, when the Olympic trials start in Omaha and the Americans, you know, they, it has been the basic formula is, you know, gradually build to, towards the trials, and then we'll show you what we've got. And if there are huge performances there, that'll probably correct the, the perception that is out there that, that the Americans are vulnerable, and especially the men are vulnerable because they're all old. Um, but we'll see. we got to wait and see because they haven't done it. You're right. I mean, the, 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 the times of most of the American men are largely very unimpressive at this point compared to the world competition. And these guys are older, longer in the tooth, which makes me actually think they're probably smarter and will be, will time it. You know, they're, they're not going to go out and just throw down huge times and big races in March and in April, knowing that really doesn't mean anything. They're going to wait until it's time, but they've got to do it in Omaha. If not, they're going to go into the Olympics uh, you know, as huge underdogs, really, quite frankly, to the Australians and several other nationalities. So uh, there will be a lot of pressure on, but these have been guys who have historically risen to the occasion. We'll see if they do it again. Pat, one name that everyone's thinking about when they think about the, the USA men's swimming team is Michael Phelps. Um, do you think that any of his disciplinary issues uh, outside of the sport have affected his readiness to come into Rio and perform to his uh, previous level? They've helped him. They've absolutely helped him. Um, being left off the national team that went to the world championships last year was huge motivation for him. And he went down to San Antonio in the national championships and just dropped bomb after bomb after bomb. It was amazing. I was there and I watched him and he swam like he hasn't since, you know, probably 2009. Uh, so if he can get back to that level, then we will see one more great performance from Michael Phelps. Uh, I'm not sure he can quite hit those high notes again. We'll find out. But if he does, he could be looking at winning three individual events uh, at Rio and, you know, possibly two or three uh, relay events as well. I mean, he could could still walk out of this somehow, some way. At his age, after retiring twice and going through all he's been through with six gold medals. I think that would be a lot to ask, but I think he's going to win multiple gold medals when all is done. So, Pat, we also, I'm looking here, uh, the Wetzel to 40 Daily Podcast. So you're a podcaster as well, and uh, and we love podcasting, obviously. It's why we do it. It's uh, sort of my raison d'etre. To you, what's the impetus for doing a podcast? What's enjoyable about it, or what's different than sort of your day-in, day-out stuff that uh, that gets you out there to do it, and will get you back out there again in August? Well, I mean, I love, basically, the way we do our podcast with, with Wetzel and I is, <laughs> it is almost no preparation, and we don't take it seriously. We seriously, you know, we just like when you're doing it daily, it's it can be a bit of a grind. And so, you know, we would tape at like ten or eleven at night, and we'd start texting about nine thirty. It's like, yeah, what do you got? Yeah, I got this. I got that. What do you got? Yeah, this and that. Okay, let's go. And we just do it, and you know, go about thirty minutes, and just kind of BS back and forth on, you know, whatever the main sports topics of the day are, because we wanted to be first thing in the morning basically a your your daily morning radio show without the commercials or without you know more commercials 
and uh, and just have those things ready at 5 a.m. and then throw in a an element of the, of the completely absurd. I mean, like we did multiple segments on Burger King introducing the hot dog, and we actually did the taste testing of the hot dogs. And, uh, you know, we, we we're big on food, we're big on beer, we're big on stupidity and silliness, whatever's going on out there. So, you know, I think podcasts can be a lot of things, and they're they're really cool, but if they're not fun then you're kind of defeating the purpose. And especially right. for us, we write, you know, a lot of relatively serious columns. And it's nice to sometimes just be able to chuck that aside and talk about just to just be a little bit more frivolous. So that that's kind of our our aim and our goal with it. And also, you know, believe it or not, maybe making some money in the process. <laughs> Uh, but Pat, we definitely appreciate you taking the time and joining us this week on uh, the Weekly Brew Podcast. And uh, for those that are interested in following your work on Yahoo and following you on social media, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, our stories are at sports.yahoo.com, and you can find them there uh, or from the Yahoo homepage. Um, I'm on Twitter a lot at Yahoo40, uh, it's Y-A-H-O-O-F-O-R-D-E. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well, so you can find me there. So they, there's... My stuff's out there. Uh, hopefully people can locate it. Yeah, definitely go check it out, especially when uh, we get to football season. We have the uh, the 40 minutes, the 40-yard dash coming up with football and basketball. But, uh, Pat, we appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week and uh, enjoy the coverage heading up to college football season and uh, the Rio Olympics. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now, just a few moments ago, you heard from Pat Forty of Yahoo Sports kind of giving his analysis of what is going on in Waco, Texas from a national perspective. And now joining us on the Weekly Brew to kind of dive into this from a local perspective in Waco, Texas, is our first three-time guest for the Weekly Brew podcast. And that's Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas. And Paul, it seems that, you know, the last few times that we've had you on the show, it's been over negative circumstances. And I guess with the Pepper Hamilton report coming out last week and Art Bryles being let go as a head football coach at Baylor University, what has been the vibe in Waco the last few days? And what can you tell us about the situation as it stands right now? Well, I would say that right now it's a shockwave that's still that's still kind of resonating. Everybody's shocked. Um, you know, I think the reaction is split. You know, our listeners, you know, a lot of them are, okay, it had to happen, it had to happen. And then a lot of them don't think there's any circumstance that our brow should have been let go. Uh, and then there's a lot that are kind of confused because, again, there's, you know, they're confused because the details they have don't make sense. You know, like if you've been attacked, why do you go to the football coach and not the police and all these things? So uh, I think most people want the real details of all this out in the open so they can understand it. I think that's the overall uh, sentiment right now is get get the full details out so we can understand what's going on because there's some people you know how fans are guys that no matter what has happened at a program they will not believe that a coach had anything to do with it or that they should be let go or that the coach is in the wrong and that they're you know it's always somebody else you know the university of texas has plotted this whole demise i've heard that so many times this week and it's just uh, it, it's it's very off base, but it, it's there's all these different sentiments. But most of all, right now, I think people are just still reeling from from this, and this will have an economic impact on the city of Waco. This, I mean, it will be far-reaching. I, I think that you know people think that uh, you know they're going to let a football coach go and move on, but he has boosted the economy of this city. There's no doubt about that, and 
this will have far-reaching impacts beyond the football field, as it should. Now, Paul, being a Baylor alum uh, myself, I can certainly attest to feeling that that shockwave. Uh, in fact, I could I could say I'm still in shock. But um, in terms of the details of the report, um, that seem it seems like that's forthcoming. Do you think at this point that the report will ever be released, or that we'll ever get some of those details that would maybe put a lot of this chatter about Brazos firing to rest? I think the Board of Regents has no choice. They may be debating that right now, but they have no choice. And if it goes any longer without details being released, they're going to have anarchy on their hands. Absolute ridiculous anarchy because people want to know. So those details are going to have to come out. Look, you guys as alums deserve to know what's going on at your school and specifically what happened. Not broad sweeping generalities over here's what it is. The alums deserve to know. The current students deserve to know. The current staff deserves to know. Anybody associated with Baylor deserves to know what happened. Now, do you have to give out specific details of every awful event that happened to a poor person? No. But you do have to say when somebody reported something and it went awry, how it went awry. Because everyone deserves to know. I've heard different things about where the program goes from here. And obviously, uh, just personally, my, the impact, I think, you know, it's important to remember the victims and the fact that this is kind of bigger than football. But in a purely football sense, they have to have a head coach for next season. So I've ESPN, I guess, reported maybe it'd be Phil Bennett, the D coordinator. Um, I saw USA Today, Jarrett Bell wrote that it should be Mike Singletary. I mean, have you heard anything just indicating uh, where their head might be at in terms of who's going to be at the helm of this fo- uh, football team next season? No, and, and I think it's because right now I don't know who's really running the athletic department. If Ian McCaw is in a kind of pseudo suspension, if he's helping make those decisions or whatever is going on with him, if the Board of Regents is making that decision. Uh, and again, uh, you know, the, there's two sides of this. A lot of people want to say, well, let's keep as much of the current staff together as we can for continuity. And then there's other people saying, well, if the coaching staff had a culture of doing this, then how can you keep any of them? Uh, but you're, you know, what, 90 days away from the beginning of the season or so you're not going to get a whole brand spanking new coaching staff in here ready to whip things into shape. So it's difficult either way. So, I mean, it looks like Phil Bennett is going to be the interim head coach, but that's not for sure yet. And, you know, the fact that it's taken this many days to announce that leads me to believe that they're at least pursuing other avenues. What those avenues are, I don't know. Uh, I think Mike Singletary would be a good one, at least temporarily, but then again, you know, it's, it's an impossible situation to put any coach in. Yeah, Paul, kind of a follow-up to that. So you, uh, in your estimation, you don't see any, uh, you know, new head coach, I mean, for the program coming in before the season starts. Do you, do you, do you see this getting dragged out until the end of the season? I think it almost has to. I mean, I, I just don't – because, again, if you want – look, outside of all the bad things that are about to happen, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the NCAA. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with lawsuits. But Coach Bryles built a program that's attractive to whoever the next coach is outside of these things that are going to happen, which are temporary. So those things are temporary as long as Baylor fixes them. So as long as Baylor fixes the problems it has, they still have a brand-new stadium across the river. They still have the most amazing facilities that they've built, the, the, you know, the bank, the, you know, the, the eating, the food facility, the cafeteria for the – the players, the weight room that they're you built, all these things are there still. They're uh, you know they're still in Texas, they're still in the Big Twelve. So again, it will be an attractive job to somebody, but it may not be that attractive of a job at least in the next year or two. But they they do have to weather whatever storm is coming 
and or that's already here and we don't just don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, speaking of weathering the storm, we've seen over the past few days that, uh, you know, guys like Cam Martin, who is supposed to enroll on Tuesday, has announced that he's now going to open up options. And there's a few members of that 2016 recruiting class who have said the same thing. And uh, looking ahead to the uh, 2017 super team is uh, Coach Bryles and a guy named Kellen Mond, who was a hot prospect at the quarterback position, like to, uh, to utilize that phrase. That recruiting class is essentially fallen apart and my, my, I guess my question for you is how much longer can Baylor go in terms of not naming a head coach to put them behind the eight ball and almost what seems like two recruiting classes and you know if Baylor was to bring in a coach at you know this juncture could you see maybe a, a Philip Montgomery or a Dino Babers coming in and just kind of riding the ship and maybe keeping some of those recruits around my only thing about Philip Montgomery is they're gonna face the same scrutiny because he was here during a lot of this. Most of it, as a matter of fact. He's only been gone for a year. So a lot of these things happened while he was the offensive coordinator. So, And some of the coaches that are on his staff that he took with him were also here and will have questions. So again, if you go down that road, you're not completely divorcing yourselves from the Bryles tree, which is going to which I don't know if they need to do or not. Again, we haven't seen specifics, but you're still going to get those questions from everybody outside of Waco, Texas, that you're trying to answer. And, uh, you know, Dino Babers, you know, just got to Syracuse. So I don't know if, I don't know if that's even a possibility. I, I just, uh, I do think that whatever decision is going to be made is going to look odd. And as far as anybody, you know, hoping that, I guess Kellen Mond might be the last one that's, and there's a defensive tackle that I think are still, you know, hanging on, but, you know, once Kellen Mond gets to IMG Academy this year and starts playing, and after all this, I would say all bets are off when it comes to him, even though he hasn't said anything yet. I mean, when you got Cam Martin, who was the biggest flag waiver for this year's class, not enrolling this week, J.P. Urquita is not enrolling this week, uh, Patrick Hudson not enrolling this week, all those guys doing that, uh, Hezekiah Jones is decommitted for next year. So there's so many guys that have changed their mind. I don't know how you unring that bell, and I don't think keeping the recruits is really what Baylor needs to worry about right now. I think they're going to need to worry about keeping the guys that are on the roster. So uh, we'll see what happens. But they just need to they need to right the ship and then deal with whatever fallout happens. If it means losing players, it means losing players. Uh, and that and that might also not be a bad thing in the long run because the NCAA might see that and go, look, they've lost all these guys. You know, there's they're they're punishing themselves, so they might need to back off. In addition, the NCAA also hasn't really laid down a good punishment in a lot a long time I mean, they they punished Penn State and that got all undone so I don't know what they can really do or will do uh, outside of letting the school police themselves and hopefully making an acceptable penalty to them so maybe all this will help things in the long run and people seeing well they've been punished so let them move forward so online, whether it be in message boards or articles that I've read, a lot of folks are describing Bryles as toxic or radioactive or rhetoric like that, and deservedly so. Obviously, he's kind of um, part of the head of the snake here. But what is his long-term outlook? I mean, we see him coaching at a high level again. Uh, is he forced to retire in ignominy? Like, what, what, what's the path forward for Art Bryles here? Because I think, like you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, people that are still sympathetic to him and are, are curious about where he's going to land. You know, and look, I I know Coach Bryles, you know, as as well as a media member can maybe know a coach, you know, I, I, I and you know, Coach Bryles is a like what shouldn't get lost in here is that Coach Bryles is a good man who's made some bad decisions, and it can happen to a lot of people, and, and success in 
all that can can change a person or can make them make some bad decisions. But I do think that Coach Bryles is going to have to worry about Coach Bryles for a little while. He's already named in one lawsuit. Who knows how many others he's going to be named in. He's probably going to have a lawsuit when it comes to how much money he's owed from Baylor. So I would say once all that stuff quiets down and gets done, he might begin to look at his coaching life again. And look, the guy's in his 60s, so he might be done. You know, maybe he tries to get back in in a couple years, but right now I just don't see a future that has him being a head coach at a high, high level again. Now, Paul, I think last time on the podcast, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, with the Sean Oakman situation and, you know, the, the that at that point, the outside the lines report that the media in Waco kind of, I don't want to say didn't do their jobs, but didn't dive into any of these reports. Most of the reports that we've seen have come from, you know, Texas Monthly and outside the lines. And I know we spoke a little bit on Friday and you said that Baylor was being very difficult in terms of media access regarding this scenario. And I am just kind of curious, you know, from your perspective as a member of the media in Waco, Texas, do you think that, you know, maybe if the media would have, I don't know, investigated this a little bit more, do you think that, you know, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation right now if, if the media kind of held Art Bryles and Baylor University accountable? Uh, you know, like that's easy to look back and say, but, you know, keep in mind that one of the reasons that Outside the Lions has gotten all this stuff is that they've got a staff of people who, because what Paula Levine did was she requested every sexual assault and domestic abuse report in Waco since, you know, I think 2009. So, all you know, then they have a staff that puts it in a spreadsheet uh, there's one beat writer that covers for the newspaper that covers Baylor football. Right. Uh, they, you have us who ha- we have, you know, seven hours of talk show to produce a day, uh, not to mention everything else that you have to do running a, a radio station, you know, that like we do, you've got the television stations that are all over the place. So unless, you know, a guy's name's going to pop up straight up on the police blotter, then it's really hard to find Waco PD doesn't list all of their files online. Um, I don't know why they do that. It's 2016. I almost actually swore there because I've had enough trouble getting information from the Waco police about stuff I know (laughs) to be true uh, that uh, it makes me want to curse a lot. Uh, You can curse and we'll bleep it. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) But I, uh, it it is 2016 Not all their files are online. You got to go down and like not all their files are in a centralized place. Sometimes you got to go down to the police department. Sometimes you got to go down to the courthouse. Sometimes you have to go down to the sheriff's department. I don't know where to go. And again, I'm a sports talk host. I'm not a crime beat reporter, so we don't have somebody like that on our staff. And then half these guys aren't charged anyway. If they're not charged, it's not going to show up on the blotter because what shows up on the blotter is just people who have been arrested. So, again, if they haven't been arrested or charged, the file goes in the file, and there you go. And to get it, you'd have to request broad, sweeping things, and you go, okay, well, here you go. Now, that's not to suggest that the coaches didn't know about these things or shouldn't have known about these things, but uh, that's that's part of the problem is that a guy doesn't get, like, for example, Devin Chafin, who I can't tell you has been kicked off the team, and that happened on Friday, uh, Devin Chafin, uh, he had the domestic abuse incident in 2014. Nobody knew about it because he wasn't charged. But there's a file with photos and all these things that that people have seen now. And so it makes you wonder what is going on that this can happen and the guy can still be on the team for two years. Even though he wasn't arrested, you can see what he did and at least bore a suspension for a little while. I mean, you know, Joe Mixon at Oklahoma got suspended when there was evidence of it, and he's 
he's not facing any criminal charges anymore, I don't think. Right. So sometimes you just have to say, listen, you did this thing. It was horrible, and you need to be suspended. Uh, the same thing with Sean Oakman. Uh, had they known that, you know, that's the other question I think we need to answer by this Pepper Hamilton report. Some of these guys got arrested. I don't think Baylor coaches found out immediately. How do you not know what's going on? I know it's hard. The police don't have to call Bryles and tell them everything that's going on, but somebody's got to know. There's got to be something going on where people know what what is happening with the players on the weekends or away from the football field. Just sort of looking into the immediate here with 2016, uh, what is your forecast for the 2016 season for Baylor? I know that there are a lot of unknowns, but uh, just just make your best guess as to what, what's going to happen with the team. It's going to be hard to overcome this emotionally. I mean, they're still very talented. I mean, like if you just look at the guys who are supposed to be the starters, they're still very talented. Before all this happened, I did, I did not expect them to compete for the conference title. I thought they had problems on the offensive line with inexperience and along the defensive line with inexperience. I think they're going to be very athletic in the back seven on the defense, and they'll always be athletic in the skill positions. And look, either the court, the quarterback's either going to be Seth Russell or Jared Stidham, so they're going to be fine there. Uh, it, the only reason it wouldn't be Seth Russell is if he hasn't fully recovered from his neck surgery, and I think that he has. So they have the potential to put up some points or put up some yards like always, but again – it is hard to play with a with a thousand pound emotional weight around your neck, which they're going to have no matter what, no matter what happens. That's not going to get shaken in a year, and the questions are still going to remain. So everything's going to follow this team for a long, long time. Uh, I I mean, bowl eligibility I think should be the the goal. You know, get to bowl eligible, get to seven and five or eight and four. If they're eight and four. I think that would that would most Baylor fans should be thrilled with an eight and four regular season. Well, that's kind of just, you know, tough to hear when you think of, you know, the last few years being a, a contender for the college football playoff. But, you know, that's the price you pay when you, uh, you know, kind of violate morality there. And, uh, you know, the coaches uh, make these decisions and don't discipline the student athletes. But, uh, you know, Paul, we definitely appreciate you coming on the show this week and discussing, you know, the Waco perspective and what's going on. And I promise when we do have you on uh, sometime this fall, we're either talking Cowboys or we're talking something positive instead of uh, legal drama. But as always, it's been great to have you on the podcast this week. And for those that are interested in following your work, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? At Paul Catalina on Twitter. You can email me, Paul, at 1660ESPN.com. I'll email you back as soon as I can. And you can always go to our website, 1660ESPN.com, and stream our live shows uh, every weekday between 11 and 7 or 6. Make sure to check out Paul Catalina on Twitter, and that's at Paul Catalina. Paul, we definitely appreciate it. Anytime, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. If you'll recall a few weeks ago on the podcast, we spoke about the Road to Rio 100 Days Out ceremony in Times Square. And perhaps one of the coolest things about Olympic and Paralympic Games is learning about the unique stories of each athlete that's going to be competing. And joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Miles Porter, the reigning silver medalist in para judo. And Miles, we're less than 100 days away from the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games, and you'll be making your third straight appearance how is everything going in terms of preparing to compete against the world's best? You know, things are great. You know, at the end of the day, hearing about third straight, I never even thought this was going to happen. I'm from a small town, Fremont, Ohio. You know, I was the only blind person in my whole town. Now, I'm not totally blind, but the only blind person in my whole town. And to say I made my third games representing the United States, I always wanted to represent the United States in some way. My brother was in the military, so... I'm fighting for my country in another way, so it's absolutely amazing. So hopefully, after getting silver in London, hopefully we hit, we get gold in Rio. 
But I'm curious. So, so being blind, uh, you know, you played sports before, and now you're a judo. Uh, how does how does being blind impact the way you approach you know the sport of judo? Well, and the one thing, uh, the one thing my dad always said, he was like, never take your disability as a disadvantage. Always embrace it. Uh, my dad actually grew up with polio, so he always he had a disability as well. My father was my father was a big inspiration to me because. He ran marathons. He was a wrestling coach for 16 years. And um, he always told me, he goes, everybody's going to look down on you. Everybody's going to judge you. Everybody's going to, you know, make sure you don't get to where they are. So that was always an inspiration to me. And then my coach, Eddie Liddy in Colorado Springs, never took it easy on me. I fight 99% of my fights against able-bodied athletes. I'm ranked number one in the country for able-bodied athletes. Before I got hurt, I was all the way up to 54 in the in the world on the International Judo Federation rankings, which never been done before. So it's it's just been a crazy whirlwind of how judo just kind of changed my life and just all I can say is sit here and like you're making me think of old things. I'm just like wow, I did this. I can't believe it. And kind of on that note, you you mentioned that you do compete against able-bodied athletes. I mean, kind of you you've got a sports background. I mean, you grew up playing football. You've done track, and you know you had Olympic coats, but you know the injury issues kind of came into play. But I mean, what does that mean for you? Just to know that it's not a disability. It's 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 what you make of it, and how you can kind of persevere through you know any sort of hiccups that you might have in life. I always tell people, you know, you build character through adversity. And, um, like I have the three D's determination, dedication, and, um, desire. And if you can't desire some, if you can't desire to be a champion, you're not going to be determined to do it. And then you don't, you won't have the dedication to do it. But like, and you know, they always go in there. If you don't have the dedication, you won't have the desire. And it, you know, it goes back and forth. And the reason why I say that is because people are like, Oh, well, I'm out of shape. Oh, well, I can't do this. Well, I can't do that. I used to, When I used to wrestle, my and it's going to be embarrassing. I'm going to put myself in an embarrassing moment. My mother used to go out and, like, speed walk with me when I was cutting weight for wrestling because, like, I was so tired I couldn't run. My mother would speed walk with me in the middle of winters in Ohio. So I'm out 14, 15 years old. You know, being a teenager, you don't want to be outside with your mother. My mother was walking past me. I'm like, hold up, wait a second. And she would beat me. So, like, I've always had that. You know, my parents have always been behind me, and I've always had that support, which has been amazing. So I'm relatively unfamiliar with the sport of judo or with martial arts in general. I think I took karate for about eight weeks as a, as a young child. So I'm not I'm not really sure. For someone who's unfamiliar, could you kind of fill us in on what exactly judo is relative to the other martial arts? Most martial arts that you think of as karate, you know, you've seen the movie Karate Kid or you've seen like Jet Li, he does Kung Fu. You've seen like An Bak, he does like Muay Thai and all that. So it's all striking, knees, elbows, hands. Well, judo derived from Japan, Japanese jiu-jitsu. What it is is pretty much Japanese version of wrestling. So we wear the geese like uh, karate and all them do, but ours are way thicker so we can grab and hold. Um, so our main way to win is throws with enough power and force that I throw you flat on your back and I show the referee that I can control you through the air from your feet to the it's equivalent to a knockout in boxing. Our matches are five minutes long, 
continuous. The only time it stops, both guys both guys go out of bounds. And if you once each opponent steps one foot in, now with the new rules, it's hajime. Hajime in Japanese means go. Means start. So you just start fighting right then and there. They don't give you a break. So you're just continuously fighting. The other three ways to win are all on the ground. So if anybody's ever watched mixed martial arts or UFC or anything like that, we do chokes. And a lot of people think they're wind chokes, but they're actually blood chokes. They're a lot safer. And uh, we can either, they can either tap out two taps or they go unconscious, which just sounds brutal, but it's really not. <laughs> Most brutal is arm bars because they can either, we get arm bars, we we only attack the elbow. We don't attack the shoulder. We don't attack the wrist. We only attack the elbow. So we go for the elbow, and they uh, they straighten it. They either tap or we dislocate the elbow. And then a pins. Pins are like wrestling, but they're unlike wrestling. So our pins are 25 seconds on the ground, but unlike wrestling, we don't need shoulder exposure. We just need back exposure and total control. It's a fun sport. I remember uh, a few years ago at the U.S. Olympic Training Center, uh, we were up there actually uh, kind of watching you and the, the judo team uh, practice. And not only that, but we got to see you training uh, some, some young children in Colorado. But you actually live at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. You've trained there for you know a number of years. What is that experience like for you, not only being around your teammates for USA Judo, but other Olympic and Paralympic athletes from a variety of sports just training together and working for your Olympic and Paralympic dreams? So being at the Olympic Training Center is a surreal experience because it's like, it's pretty much like the version of making a, say, a professional team. Everybody there is trying to make an Olympic team. Everybody, everybody there is trying to make the final 54-man roster on the NFL team. So everybody's working to strive to be the best they can be. So, like, we have wrestlers. We, we, we go in the cafeteria and we see we're, we're eating dinner next to world champions from swimming, world champions from wrestling, world champions from triathlon, fencing, volleyball. You just don't know who's going to be in there. Like, right now, Michael Phelps is in the cafeteria. So I don't even bother going in because, you know, pfft, shut down. I'm okay. <laughs> I don't need to eat that much. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure I'm not taking presents over Michael Phelps. I'm just saying. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those where, like, it's an inspiration every day because, you know, you might be training to the next sport's best, so you always want to elevate yourself. You always want to bring your best every day. Even if you're having a down day, you want to try and bring your best to make sure you know you got a good workout in that people see you and people understand your sport and know what you're going through. I mean, you are a spokesman for judo, kind of bringing it to a national audience. You know, I'm reading your, your profile on TeamUSA.org, and you've obviously been to uh, New York City, Chicago, Miami, Washington, D.C., which is the most interesting one, I think. It says here you, you gave President Obama a short judo lesson on the East Lawn of the White House, and I'm curious, was that nerve-wracking? I mean, did you have uh, uh, Secret Service uh, guns trained on you to make sure you didn't flip him too hard? Obama took his jacket off. He took his shoes off because we said no shoes on the mat, and he was going to throw me. And then all the cameras, there was like 150 cameras. All the cameras came through because they had like, they had like um, a bunch of gymnasts. They had other sports there. And uh, so he was like, no, I can't do this. I can't do it in front of the camera. And um, I heard Michelle say something. 
And I was like, yeah, wussy. Come on, wussy. And Ryan looked at me. You saw the president of the United States a wussy. I was like, he's on my mat, dude. And <laughs> President Obama, funniest guy. President Obama, I think, is the most down-to-earth guy in the world. He's amazing. I don't care what you care about his politics, care about policies, anything what he does. As a man, he's absolutely – he's a guy I'd hang out with every day if I could. He's absolutely awesome. So he goes – he goes, Miles, I know you can't see very well, but do you see those bushes? I was like, yes, sir. He goes, are they moving? I was like, no. He goes, they're doing their job. And I, was, I started cracking up laughing. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, okay, you know, we're fine. We're fine. And it was awesome because in Washington, D.C., we had uh, school kids that came out. They got to throw us in front of uh, – uh, Mr. President and the First Lady as well. Yeah, Miles, we're definitely looking forward to seeing you compete in, in Rio here in September. And uh, we know that you're busy training and getting ready for uh, the, the Paralympic Games. But I guess you've already qualified for the Games. I guess leading up to Rio de Janeiro, what does your training process look like to get you into gold medal shape? I actually leave for Britain next Wednesday. We have, uh, we have 10 days in Britain, so we have a tournament and training camp. And then we come back, we'll train in Colorado Springs for a while. Um, my coach is talking about sending me to Cuba or sending me somewhere else. And then um, we'll come back for a little while. And uh, we have we have a tournament in Wakefield, uh, Massachusetts, with Jimmy Pedro and his, uh, his club. It'll be the Olympic and Paralympic uh, prep camp. And that'll be about two weeks long. And then I'll come back here, you know, get a little rest, Eddie will push it through, we'll fine-tune things, and we'll make sure everything's right. Um, with my coach, Eddie Liddy, he's one of the most like fine-tuned kind of coaches that you'll ever find. Like, grip fighting, you know, like, he, he's one that, he, he can see you in a match, raise your hand three inches, and all of a sudden it makes a difference in the whole match. He's one of those that can pinpoint certain things that you never even think of while you're fighting. Like I said, I've been so lucky to come to Colorado Springs and be under this guy. Eddie Liddy is probably one of the most amazing coaches, one of the most amazing athletes I've ever met. Uh, he was uh, he, he was very nice to meet a few years ago in Colorado Springs. But, uh, Miles, we're definitely cheering for you as you get ready for Rio. And uh, for those that are interested in kind of following your journey and following, uh, you know, kind of your story on social media, what is the best way for them to connect with you online? So I have Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R, uh, USA Judo Athlete. That's my fan page. I also have Miles, M-Y-L-E-S, underscore, Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R. That's my Twitter handle. I do have a Snapchat. It's the same thing, Miles underscore Porter. And then I have an Instagram, and I don't know what that is. I think it's Miles underscore Porter as well. <laughs> so definitely, I'm terrible, at social, I'm terrible at social media. I'm getting old. I don't do all this. Like, I remember back in 2004 when Facebook first came out. So <laughs> I, I'm showing my age right now. Yeah, social media is, uh, I don't know, I guess it does make us feel old. But, uh, Miles, we definitely appreciate you joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And uh, it's been great hearing your story and hearing about how you're preparing for, uh, you know, Rio and representing Team USA. We appreciate it. Well, I, I really appreciate the time, and I appreciate you guys' like, support. And I really hope you guys really follow me. And, like I said, thank you so very much, and thank you for the opportunity one more time.
Closing time. Another great episode of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks to Pat Forty, Paul Catalina, and Miles Porter for joining us on this week's show. And uh, guys, I, I thought, you know, all interviews were great, and uh, especially Pat Forty. I mean, it was great to hear his passion about uh, the Summer Olympics. And I thought, you know, he definitely shared some great insight into where Team USA Swimming is actually going as we head into the uh, the Rio Olympics and uh, kind of an interesting take that he had on uh, Michael Phelps, but he also brought up some very good points about Baylor University, and I thought Paul Catalina did as well, but I'm curious, what did you guys think of this week's show? Pat Forty. I mean, come on. Give it up, people. If you're in your car, give it up. Pat Forty. That's the kind of work we're doing around here. We bring it to you. We bring it home. We are Houston Sports, and that's all there is to it. Uh, I'm really proud of ourselves this week, uh, and I hope you guys are proud of yourselves as well. Uh, I extend my... Uh, my admiration to all of us at this table for the show that we put on this week. It's just a terrific job week in and week out, and uh, you really can't get enough of it, I think. With Kevin around, I never need to, to congratulate myself or any of you. <laughs> uh, I, I, loved, uh, I loved the show, obviously, because um, you know, it's fun to do with you guys. I, I, this was not my favorite episode, obviously, um, with everything going on, but I thought uh, Pat was uh, very insightful. I feel like he was passionate. Um, you know, he was critical of Baylor, but also very fair. Um, and so I, I cannot, uh, I certainly cannot argue with anything he said. So, um, but, uh, and also, you know, big, big thanks for Paul for coming on in the midst of all this. So, um, but yeah, it was not, not my favorite episode, but always love doing this with you guys. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think this is the fourth time that we've spoken about violence at Baylor. And, uh, I think I said this the last time, but hopefully this is the last time that we speak about this. I imagine when Baylor hires a new football coach, then we'll discuss that as well. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a sad week for uh, fans and alumni of Baylor University for a multitude of reasons. I, I don't think football is the, you know, the saddest thing that happened. I think it's uh, that all the events that transpired leading up to this week, I think uh, uh, it's, it's time for the university to heal, to move forward, and to make sure that they are a leader uh, when it comes to colleges across the country because rape and domestic violence it's not just a Baylor thing it's happening everywhere every single school in the United States I mean you look at the arrest record and the criminal reports that go on the difference is I think Baylor was covering it up and they got caught and that's a very unfortunate situation and hopefully uh, you know Baylor actually protects victims uh, moving forward and becomes a leader throughout the country. It's important to point out that although it's a sad week for Baylor fans in some ways, in other ways, it's probably a very happy week, or at least a very vindicating week for victims uh, that had their crimes covered up, that did not have their reports um, legitimized, that were not given the services and help that they needed. And so I think in some corners there's going to be a lot of, um, probably not enthusiasm, but at least vindication for like, okay, they finally uh, heard us. We were finally part of the discussion. We were finally part of what mattered in this whole situation. And so I don't think it's unhappy. I think it's just and deserved a good step by the university. Obviously, that Pepper Hamilton report was uh, very thorough and comprehensive, and it does seem like they're making the right steps here. So at no point, I think, should we forget about the people who are actually the victims here, who actually had their lives disrupted uh, and in some cases destroyed by these horrible actions that then were not punished uh, and were not um, addressed. So so I'm not everyone is as unhappy. Obviously, it's a sad week, um, but at least things are moving in the right direction. Yeah, I think everyone is disappointed, Kevin. I think everyone's disappointed in how this actually happened and how it could have happened at their university. I think if even if you're a victim, I think you are pissed off that this was allowed to happen. So I, th I think I'm not talking about our brows being fired. I'm talking about the event in itself. It's disgusting how it happened. It's disgusting how it was covered up. And yeah, it's great that the, uh, you know, the victims finally now have a sense of relief that the guy that helped cover up the crimes 
is no longer employed by the university. But I think for everyone involved, especially if you attended the university, especially if you donate money to the university, I mean, I graduated in 2010. I have four season tickets. I donate a lot of money to the university. And for me, I kind of feel uh, like I've been lied to. And so I, I think it's hurtful for every single person involved. And I think for some people, it's to a lesser degree. Some people, it's to a higher degree. But I think everyone has been hurt by this in some way or another. And uh, it's just a sad situation all around. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I think the, the degree to which we know specifics about everything that occurred, um, of course, I, I don't know if that report will ever be released in full. Um, in fact, I'm hearing that it won't be. But um, you know, and I, I, but as a Baylor fan, I kind of feel like we have the right to know what exactly went on. But um, you know, I guess the, we'll have to do with the report, um, the summary that was released by the university. So, um, but going forward, I just I, I hope that, that things get better, and I'm 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 hopeful for the future, even though I'm upset right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's the uh, the most important thing is that uh, Baylor actually takes these steps and they follow through with these steps, and so nothing like this can ever happen again. But uh, in terms of positive notes for the week, we actually had an iTunes review. Kevin? Great news. Welcome to the iTunes review section, my favorite part of the show. Uh, it's a little bit of a tone shift there from the earlier sadness, but I got to say, I'm so fired up about these reviews that um, that I'm already on to the next year. So we did have one from Ray101010. That's Ray101010. Uh, I'm not sure what the significance of that is. Does that mean that he wanted to give us like three 10-star reviews? Yeah. If you want to steal other people's iTunes accounts and give us further reviews, we are all for that. We are not um, about doing this the honorable way here. We're about doing it any way we can. But um, he, he wrote us a five-star review. Great job. Five stars. Great podcast. Yes. With great guests. Pat Forty. Yes. Also. Uh, very professional and well, I'm not very professional, but covers a number of topics. That part is true. Worth the listen. I think I do know who this guy is. Um, I believe a follower of ours on Twitter as well, and uh, a guy who also follows the Scott and Holman podcast. Shout out to those guys. Um, so I think I'm familiar with who this guy is, and uh, all I can say is, uh, Ray, about time, dude. It's been long enough. We appreciate the five-star review. It helps us a ton. My week is made. I'm going to be happy, and if I run into you in public, um, I'll give you a hug or something. I don't know. You call your shot there. Yeah, so Kevin actually met some of the people that had given iTunes reviews this week, and uh, I think he was uh, a huge fan of theirs. But uh, in addition to leaving us iTunes reviews, we want to make sure that you also follow us on our social media channels. You can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also subscribe to our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post all of the content up there each Monday morning, and it's pushed straight into your inbox, so I highly recommend it. But uh, guys, we had a phenomenal episode. Again, thanks to Pat Forty from Yahoo Sports for joining us, Paul Catalina from ESPN Central Texas, and Paralympic gold medal favorite Miles Porter joining us from the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. But I really enjoyed episode 45 of the Weekly Brew podcast, and hopefully Dolores and Orbit are having a nice vacation this Memorial Day weekend but we enjoyed the show i hope you guys did as well and for my co-host kevin cook and jeremy paxton i'm austin staten we'll see you next week and guys remember no matter who you are what you do or where you go this week always always brew responsibly you've been listening to the weekly brew 